Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS On Air Market Moves podcast channel. We do have a timely conversation for you today. This fresh off the most recent Fed policy meeting and decision. So looking forward to hearing insights into that and into the fixed income landscape from Leslie Falconio, head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Leslie will be leading the conversation with our special guest. Glad to welcome back from Columbia Threadneedle Investments, the global head of fixed income, Gene Tenuzo. So, Leslie, Gene, welcome back. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners and clients. Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead the conversation with Gene. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Gene. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. And, and it's been, the timing couldn't be better. When we just think about, you know, how much interest rates have, have rallied even since the beginning of the year. We're talking about, you know, 50 basis points or so, you know, in a 10-year, not to mention the incredible amount of, you know, spread compression that we've seen across all fixed income assets, particularly those that are of what we consider higher credit embedded sectors. But before we get really get started, I mean, the first question I have to ask you, just because uh, it was such a highlight yesterday and it's obviously fueling into today's markets is what we what are your thoughts or what were your thoughts on the FOMC Fed first meeting yesterday? Yeah, th- thanks Leslie and thanks Dan. I uh, appreciate coming back on uh, to join you. As it relates to the Fed yesterday, I think there are a couple of important developments here that are that we should highlight. You know, the first is that we are at an important transition point that is very different than what we saw in 2022. In 2022, the transition point was the Fed is off sides. We started the year with interest rates at zero, and the Fed had to quickly chase inflation higher and hike at the fastest pace that they have in over 30 years. Now the transition point is one in which the Fed has hiked sufficiently and we're coming up on a pause in that hiking cycle. Powell had an opportunity yesterday to push back on the notion that maybe yields had rallied too far, maybe financial conditions, and you referenced credit spreads, Leslie, maybe those have tightened too much. He didn't take that opportunity. Rather, he felt somewhat encouraged by the decline in inflation that we've seen recently and really helped corroborate and support the view that investors had that that pause is coming probably at the next couple of meetings. So the market was certainly excited to hear that or perhaps not hear any particular pushback. The second thing that I think we can't ignore, whether it relates to the Fed meeting yesterday or other central bank meetings that we're seeing in Europe today, is that the technical setup um, in terms of market expectations probably helped allow for this. And what I mean is you had a market that had so much concern about rising inflation and was so positioned to be short government bonds that any sign of relief can really allow for a large rally like we're seeing. I was joking with our head of interest rate research this morning that, you know, at the press conference yesterday, a reporter could have asked Jay Powell his favorite flavor of ice cream. And if he answered chocolate, the market would have rallied because It wasn't really about the answer. It was more about the fact that the market was relieved and positioned so one way that the technicals allowed it it to rally. So I think it's a bit technical, but a bit fundamental as well, just in terms of relief around getting to uh, near the point of a pause. 
I, yeah, I can, we completely agree with that, Gene. And I think to your point, the, the mention of, you know, disinflation was mentioned so many times as a means to, or an emphasis on this potential soft landing given the strength of the job markets. But he also reiterated the fact that, you know, they're not done yet. And I think right. in terms, I think that in terms of the loosening financial conditions and the fact that there wasn't a tremendous amount of pushback from the chair really did, to your point, surprise the market. But when we think about that, though, there is something that is tighter that we know, and that's borrowing costs, right? The cost of borrowing, whether it is, you know, the corporate credits or whatever might be coming to the market, whether it's a key consumer with their mortgage rate or an auto loan, you know, borrowing costs are higher. So when we, I just wanted to just with that, take that lead and the shift over when we think about this, this higher big picture outlook in terms of this just look at credit in terms of you know both public and private you know as a whole but let's first start with you know the the, the private side i mean we we know that you know after 2022 as you mentioned this rise in interest rates the headwinds that we saw to performance the rise in the barrier to credit i mean we know that things like public in terms of high yield supply was down and the private market has really expanded expanded over the past several years for that matter you know, how do you see sort of those trends in the private sector really evolving over the next 12 months? I think it's a good question. I, I do think the public, uh, excuse me, the private markets are very much here to stay. There is a role for private markets in terms of funding, particularly issuers that are smaller or have more sort of customized and bespoke needs. And that fits well for investors who don't have an immediate liquidity need because private markets, of course, don't have the same liquidity profile as public markets. Um, so I think, you know, that there will be a continue to be a, a permanent fixture of, of each market. But I do think there is an important change that occurred last year because of the, I'll just call it the discount rate shock that we had. And that discount rate shock started with the Fed, but really reverberated across all markets, whether you were in you know, corporate credit, leverage loans, private credit, structured products, mortgages, you name it. And if you think about the value proposition of private credit, and I'll just, you know, hone in on, you know, direct corporate loans. There are a lot of different types of private credit, but use private uh, direct corporate loans as an example. The value proposition was, look, you compromise some liquidity, you give some liquidity as an investor, but in return, you pick up yield versus what you can get in public markets. If I go back to mid-2021, at the most expensive, lowest yield levels, investment-grade assets might have given and provided investors a yield of one and three quarters to 2%. At the absolute tights, the high-yield market would have given investors a yield of three and a half percent, very, very paltry. Those are public market yields. So at that time, the private market looked pretty attractive. You could get, you know, a couple percent more, maybe double, you know, what the high yield market was offering. And that was a five or six percent yield, perhaps at that point in time. We went through the discount rate shock that we did. And now we're in an environment where you can get 5% yields on investment-grade assets and 8 to 9% yields on high-yield public assets. So to underwrite a new private loan to a company, the, the discount rate, essentially, the, the, the new 
lending rate would have to be somewhere um, above that, probably in the low double-digit range. Now, while that might sound attractive to an investor, that could be a punitive borrowing cost to, to many borrowers and wouldn't necessarily work financially for them. So that becomes very difficult. The reason that's important and to your question on you know, how the market evolves in the next 12 months, I think it's going to be difficult for borrowers to really want to fund themselves in private markets at what would have to be the conforming levels right now. So I think the growth in new issuance this year will be more concentrated in the public markets. I think we'll see that in investment grade. We'll see that in certain parts of high yield. And I think the private markets are going to have to really deal with this issue that borrowing costs are a lot higher. And for some of these companies, that's going to mean some real potential pain, especially if demand in the economy starts to slow. So when we think about, let's, let's look at the public markets then for a second. I mean, let's, and let's talk about some, uh, some of the wall of worries, if you will. And although we know that it's been a very long time that fixed income investors have been able to earn this amount of yield and carry as a, which really over the long term we know is a driver of total return. Um, you know, so, but how, when we think about what spreads have done, you know, the fact that high yield is, you know, tightened by, say, 60 basis points, and we've had this really tremendous amount of spread compressions, and yields are lower now than they were in the beginning of the year. Um, how how do you look at sort of, or what are the sort of the walls of worry when you think about going forward, um, some of these headwinds in terms of, you know, performance or really the risk premium that investors is being offered with these lower quality credits within the fixed income sectors? Yeah, that's, that's a good segue. And I think credit markets are pricing in uh, a softer landing, a softish landing, let's put it that way. And I think if we're fair about it, the data in the last three months tells us that the window for a soft landing in the economy is still open. It's still a possibility. In history, there aren't tremendous amount of examples of successful soft landings after periods of sharp tightening, but there are some, and maybe the, the closest example was the sharp tightening in 1994 and early 1995, when the Fed was able to then really stabilize interest rates for a period of time, and a recession didn't come until many years later. If that environment were to play out, I don't think corporate credit markets are mispriced, but I do think investors are going to have to be pretty careful because you're not being paid a generous risk premium. I'd say you're being paid somewhere around an average risk premium to be on a very long-term basis. Investors are going to have to be more discerning in terms of where they're taking that risk. Now, if we look at the sort of growth outlook for the economy, we get stuck in this narrative sometimes in the market about will there be a recession or won't there be a recession? And it's a seems to be a black and white thing. And if it's yes, recession is going to happen, then, well, investment grade needs to trade at 200 basis point credit spreads and high yield needs to trade at 800 to 1,000 basis point credit spreads. I don't think that's the right way to look at it, um, not because there aren't examples of that in history, but because I don't think as investors we're going to be particularly effective trying to play the recession on-off game. And it's 
tempting, I think, for market commentators to look at the last two recessions, which were a global pandemic and a global financial crisis, and use those as a proxy for what a recession might look like. And I, I don't think that's right. I think more realistically, there are patterns of demand change that do drive industry-specific recessions, and those happen more frequently and are more identifiable. And it's we have more opportunities as, as investors to invest around those. Let me give you a more specific example of what I mean. 2015, there was a very hard recession in the energy market. If you look at the National Bureau of Economic Research, there was no recession in 2015 in the economy in aggregate. But if you were an investor in high-yield energy, you sure as heck felt it. And I think where we are today, there are industry-specific recessions happening, and those are things that we can invest around in an environment in which the overall risk premium is not super generous. Three in particular that I would highlight, one would be if we look at the manufacturing sector of the economy, it does seem like heavy industrial and manufacturing is, is in a recession. I think simple indicators like the IASM survey would corroborate that. The second area would be residential real estate. Given what's happened with mortgage borrowing costs, housing construction has slowed meaningfully. And I think housing construction and the peripherally related industries are in a recession. And then the third would just be those areas that are specifically rate, specifically sensitive to the lower 30 to 40% of the consumer income brackets. What we've seen as we've come into 2023 is that the savings buffer, particularly in the bottom two quintiles, basically the bottom 40% of, of income consumers, um, those consumers have sort of burned through their savings, and in those cohorts, delinquencies on mortgages, on auto loans, on other consumer loans are rising. So companies that are more exposed to the lower-income consumer are going to be in a difficult position. Those three areas, um, I think, are areas that when we look at high yield, we can invest defensively around those. And I think if you could do that, there are still opportunities elsewhere you know, to earn attractive yield in the you know eight percent type area in high yield by still being defensive in areas that are related to real estate that are related to the the low end consumer or manufacturing, et cetera. So let's let's sort of switch from the high yield market to the loan market here. I mean, and I'll, from our from the chief investment office perspective and in our fixed income portfolio allocations, you know we we do have what we call the least preferred or an underweight, if you will, to Things like loans and senior loan market. How do you? How are you looking at that in terms of the differentiation between from now till going forward? Because both, as we know, both sectors have had, had meaningful spread compression. You know, the first you know four or five weeks of the year. You know, but how are you yep. looking at those defaults and recoveries in the loan market versus the high yield? And what would be you know a a again sort of a wall of worry or a pocket of vulnerability that investors should look out for? Right. I, I think um, the loan market, I used the word soft landing earlier, and if the economy can execute a soft landing, loans are probably the best asset class um, if that scenario plays out. Um, in terms of you know the 9% yield on the asset class, and you are trading at a discount dollar price, I think you could have a very nice income profile. But I think you're, you're very 
reasonable to have an underweight to the asset class in the sense that if we don't perfectly nail that soft landing, the vulnerabilities are real. And we need to think differently about the loan market today in absolute and relative to the high yield market than we did a decade ago or, or longer. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, the first is just simple credit quality. So if you look at the credit quality of the leveraged loan universe, it's actually slightly worse than the high yield bond universe. Certain issuers with higher leverage have tended to borrow more in the loan market, or in some cases, the private credit markets. And that's actually meant the high yield bond market has been left with a higher credit quality composition. The second is the leveraged loan market doesn't have the same covenant protection that it did a decade or two ago. So the the essentially leverage, or I should say the negotiating power that borrowers have with an issuer in the leveraged loan market is reduced. So in the event that you see defaults rising in the leveraged loan market, the recoveries are actually lower, and I'd expect them to be lower than what we've even seen in the high-yield market. And that's a change from what we've seen in history. So it's appropriate to think about the leveraged loan market as a bit riskier, but you are paid a bit more right now. You're paid you know, 9% in the loan market versus call it 8% in very rough terms in yield in the high-yield bond market. So you're paid for that to a degree. I would say if investors are utilizing loans or loan strategies, I'd recommend staying higher quality. And, and that's because there are some technicals in the loan market that are important to be aware of. And those relate to the CLO market or the CLO industry. Even if you're not investing directly in CLOs, you have to recognize that the CLO buyer makes up about two-thirds of the overall demand in the loan market as a whole. And the CLO buyer has been largely absent from the loan market throughout the course of 2022. We have seen conditions improve a bit. So I think if CLOs start to ramp again and we start to see new CLO issuance, that demand can come back to the loan market. But you have to understand where that demand goes. It goes specifically to the higher credit quality segments of the market. And by definition, it almost can't own or it's very limited in the amount of lower rated or triple C or even B minus rated loans that they can buy. So you see this interesting dynamic in the loan market where basically loans can trade very close to par until there's a risk that they get downgraded to near triple C. And then those loans might trade anywhere from 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. And that's a that's a pretty slippery slope and a game where, um, you know, the price skew is not in your favor. So I, I think loans in, in the narrower outcome of a, of a soft landing can produce a very nice yield. Um, in the absence of that as your core scenario, I would recommend staying higher quality in the loan market and expect that in the event of volatility, that they shouldn't be considered a safer asset class than high yield bonds at this stage. Right, so so let's let's sort of cast the net. So let's widen the net out a little bit because I, I we have to talk about a little bit of what's what's happening, you know, within global markets. And we know in today's, for example, with the BOE and the ECB, I mean, the Fed's not the only, you know, uh, hawkish central bank out there. So when we think about, you know, how are you viewing the global markets when it comes to credit? And this includes your opinion on the impact of China reopening and, you know, how might how might that have a domino uh, effect into, you know, the U.S., whether it's, you know, the price of oil or rising inflation or whatever, however that might actually, you know, shift um, economic momentum. How are you sort of viewing 
relative value globally outside of the U.S. here? Yeah, I think there are two key themes that we're paying close attention to outside the U.S. The first is Europe, and the second is the reopening in China. As it relates to Europe, I point out a couple things. First, on monetary policy, yes, you're right. Central banks over the last year have been moving in a very hawkish direction. But the movement that we've seen on a marginal basis today and in recent weeks has been consistent with the general movement of the Fed. In other words, very hawkish last year, moving to less hawkish and maybe you know, seeing some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the end of rate hikes. I would take the ECB as an example. Christine Lagarde probably had the, the most hawkish press conference and, and ECB meeting in December um, that, that we can remember. But then today, even though she hiked by the same amount, half of a percent, was much more acknowledging of a you know, potentially slower growth backdrop um, and, and the potential that inflation pressures could be coming down. So, you know, that's, you know, really encouraged a very strong rally in, in government bonds across Europe today as we, as we see that going, going on. Um, but so, so that, that general central bank trend is moving similar to the Fed. Looking at other unique dynamics to Europe, we've had a benefit that, quite frankly, the inflation and cost of living crisis is moderating a bit. Some of that is supported by the fact that weather has been a bit warmer than than usual. Therefore, the worst of potential heating bills for a lot of Northern Europe that hasn't uh, been as painful as it could have been. Also, as you look at inflation, just as sort of investors were, were conditioned to look at year-over-year price changes, and we're getting to the point where the war in Ukraine, which caused such dramatic price hikes a year ago, we're going to start to lap some of in in some areas and some commodities. We're going to start to lap those, and year-on-year changes in inflation will start to look lower or negative, even if the price itself is quite elevated relative to several years ago. So I think those things optically make it look like um, the growth backdrop is not so bad, and inflation is getting a little bit less bad. Um, and I think. You know, if you sort of look at valuations from a credit perspective, I think Europe is the area where we think credit is is pretty cheap relative to the U.S. And there's two ways to look at that. One are European-specific companies. There you have to do on whether the growth dynamics in particular industries and countries, you know, are are are, are changing and are, are different than the U.S. But I think a simpler thing to look at is simply multinational issuers, large companies like a Ford or a Netflix that issue bonds in U.S. dollars and in euros. And if you look at those same bonds trading half a percent to three quarters of a percent or more cheaper in euros and in portfolios that are flexible, having the ability to hedge out that currency difference, um, that's an attractive opportunity for the same fundamental risk. So the short story is, we think there are opportunities in Europe, particularly in corporate credit, both investment grade and high yield. Um, and we've been taking advantage of that in some of our, our more flexible portfolios. Um, as you look to China, I think the reopening of China is an important theme and important catalyst for all markets through the course of 2023. The truth is we've been waiting for this for a long time. It's three years since the you know 
most the, the, the sort of epicenter of the, the pandemic itself. And China, if we look back less than a year ago, still had as many people in hard lockdown, shelter-in-place lockdown, as the entire U.S. population, which is pretty amazing to, to consider. So the fact that they're allowing more, quote-unquote, normal activity, I think is an encouraging thing for global growth and certainly for domestic Chinese growth. There's a question as to, does that mean that you know, that's an inflationary impulse? Um, I would actually argue the opposite. Having China open can, infect, can affect inflation two ways. In raw commodities, does their demand increase and therefore the price might go up? To some degree, yes. But I think this has largely been already priced into industrial and probably energy commodities in our view. But the other way that China affects inflation is through supply chains. And I think this is the most critical one. And this is what we saw early on in the pandemic as individuals sheltered in place, consumed more goods than services, and quite frankly, just ordered everything on Amazon. And when a lot of those things had to come from China or Southeast Asia, but the supply chain was locked up for a variety of reasons, they couldn't get out. There was a shortage and that caused inflation. I would view the reopening of China as mostly allowing for normalization of supply chains, allowing for capacity to come online, and mostly in the goods sector being disinflationary. So I think there are, there are forces that are cutting both ways, but I would mostly view the reopening of China as a net disinflationary force and a positive sign of demand for the economy. So for us, that doesn't necessarily mean you invest a lot of your fixed income portfolio in China, but I think it does give us just more broadly, a slightly more optimistic outlook for um, emerging market debt in general. And that's an area that I think last year got, got beaten up pretty significantly. So we feel a bit better about it in 2023. So just to clarify on the EM side, is that both like high yield and IG or how are you, how are you, would you position there in EM? I think the best value in EM is probably in the triple B, double B area. As you go higher quality than that, you get some certainly very high quality issuers, but you're not paid a risk premium that's better than developed market corporate bonds. So you're looking at areas like China sovereign or some Middle Eastern uh, countries that are cash rich like Saudi Arabia um, that are high quality from a, from a credit perspective, but don't have an attractive risk premium. Um, and if you go below kind of the double B area into single B and, and, and lower, you really have some really risky political situations that um, if you're right, you get a nice yield, but if you're wrong, you, you can really lose your shirt. And you know, we've seen that throughout the course of, of 2022 with some of the more distressed countries. So we, we would kind of look at that triple B, double B area as the sweet spot in EMD. Well, that's great. And Gene, I, I want to just thank you so much. This has really been a, a very enlightening conversation and, you know, we, we appreciate your outlook and it's, and it's really timely too with everything that's going on. It's hard to believe that we're only, we're barely into the second month of the year and we've seen all this transition. And I'm sure that when we have you back on the next six months, we'll be talking about, well, volatility has collapsed, but who knows exactly what's going to happen after after May of this year or June of this year. And we'll see if, if in fact, the market is right when it prices in easing in the second half. But I do I do appreciate your, your insights, and it was really great to have you on. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Leslie.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 